All right, in terms of announcements, we've got um, just a reminder of the picnic on October the 19th at Orlando Salas's, and then the prayer breakfast this month for men's prayer breakfast, men, Saturday, September the 21st. And I think that is it, other than just a reminder, we have brochures out there on the pre-trib rapture study group meeting that will be coming out, that will coming up in uh, uh, December, I think it's the 8th to the 10th, I, I may be wrong, is that right? 11th to 13th. 11th to 13th, okay. See, I knew that wasn't quite right, but that week. By the way, I got an email this morning, and I've already ordered it, but Michael Rydelnik and Ed Bloom, whose name means nothing to you, but he was one of my favorite professors at Dallas when I was a student. Um, I didn't agree with him much, but he made me think. I always preferred this, the professors who made you think to the ones that just told you whatever it was you already agreed with. And, uh, and he was one of those. He was very good. Anyway, they have just edited a large, what looks, what appears to be a large volume that has many different articles written by different scholars all on messianic prophecies, all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament published by Moody Press. And so that looks like it will be an outstanding work. I know Michael's been working on that for a couple of years. And if anybody is thinking about going to pre-trib this year, then that might be something to get now. It's going to be released on October 1st. And that might be something to get now so that you can read up on some things before you go to the conference. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, that we are walking with the Holy Spirit, which means we're abiding in Christ, walking in the light, walking in the truth. It, it, the, all of these are different ways of talking about enjoying our fellowship with God, that partnership. We have reference to that in our opening passage here in First Peter chapter one, Second Peter chapter one, verse three. So let's make sure we're enjoying our fellowship with God and that we're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. So, if necessary, we confess sin, and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to do that. Did my volume just go way up? I thought so. I'm, I'm lowering my voice, so. Maybe when we come back from our silent prayer, it will diminish. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have bestowed upon us, for all that you have given us, that you've given us everything related to life and godliness. You've given us salvation, a complete total package of perfect salvation. And Father, you have, along with that, given us a rich spiritual life, the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, his sanctifying ministry in our life during this church age. You've given us a completed canon of scripture 
And as we are 19 to 20 centuries into the church age, we have such a wealth of material, good, solid theology and doctrine. Father, we pray that we do not take this for granted, but that we might recognize that we are put here to serve you, and it is your word, it is being in Bible class, it is meditating on your word that trains us, prepares us, equips us for that work of ministry that you have for each one of us. Father, we pray that tonight as we continue our study that we may recognize how complete and sufficient your word is in every area, that we may expand our thinking to understand what it means uh, that you are a God of truth and that your word is truth. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, entitled tonight's lesson, long title. It won't fit in the slot in the, probably on the website, but man's truth versus God's truth. Now, this is important. I want you to notice that when you look at that slide, man's truth, truth is all lowercase. God's truth, truth is uppercase. And that's the conflict. It's God's truth versus man's idea of what truth is. There's a saying that goes around that is very, very popular, and it sounds good, and I remember as um, <clears throat> someone who's first really getting my feet wet in a lot of this discussion that oh, the question that you, or the, the statement would, you would often hear, I mean from solid, solid men, theologians, pastors, all truth is God's truth. Sounds good, doesn't it? All truth is God's truth. Because if God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, then that which is true must be, must conform to God's truth, and therefore it must be God's truth. But that's not what this is saying. That's what people want it to mean. But we've got to learn what it, what it really means. And what it means is, what, what the problem is here is you've got a major logical fallacy that when you say all truth, the truth that you're talking about is lowercase truth. It is truth that man has perceived and interpreted on his own through his limited rational capacities. And God's truth is that which has been revealed, which is part of God's plan and purpose, where we get just an insight into his omniscience. And it is the truth of God's word. And so we dare not ever elevate the results of human interpretation to the same level of authority as God's truth. And that's wherein you have so many problems. And you can't pick up a book dealing with Christian psychology and the theories and models of Christian theology, so-called Christian theology, without them defending their position by using this little phrase. But it doesn't just relate to Christian psychology. It is also very much related to how, how what we call science, scientific facts are interpreted, uh, how we interpret any empirical data or rational data. So, so the big enemies that have come out of the last 150 years have been enemies that derive from the observational hard sciences, whether it's geology, biology, anything related to developing a view of origins other than the biblical view, 
And when it comes to the soft sciences, by soft sciences, the social sciences, uh, it, it affects history. Sociology is a big rule. You talk about why you have all these big megachurches that have developed over the last 20 or 30 years, and they are, they're all following the same blueprint. In fact, many of them are following exactly the same proof, uh, blueprint, which is Rick Warren's model for the purpose-driven church. And you have to follow his model to be part of his plan. You have to follow it to the letter because if you don't, he'll kick you out. Nobody wants to be kicked out. So everybody follows that human viewpoint model to the T. Does it work? Oh, yeah, they get big churches. If your goal is to have a big church with three or four or 5,000 people, then it works and you've achieved your goal. But just because you can build a big organization with a lot of people and have a lot of money and resources doesn't mean God the Holy Spirit had a thing to do with it. And it doesn't mean you're following God's way. God's will must be done in God's way. The right thing has to be done in the right way. Methodology is not neutral. All of these ideas uh, fit together. So it's very important for us to understand that this little saying so popular, has, has derailed so many believers. Thousands, probably tens or hundreds of thousands of believers have had their spiritual life shipwrecked on this little saying because they haven't been taught how to think, and it sounds really good. So we're going to be exposing a lot of this and learning what the Bible says about God's truth as we go through our study. So just a reminder... In terms of review, in 1 Peter 1.3, we have one of uh, two or three key passages dealing with God's sufficiency, that here his divine power, God's omnipotence is given to us all things, everything, doesn't leave anything out that pertain to our life and godliness as it's translated in the King James and many other passages, but it should be translated God's His divine power, his dunamis, his omnipotence has given us everything pertaining to life, zoe, meaning physical life, and eusebia, which refers to spiritual life. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. Christ Christ-likeness is the same as God-likeness. Godliness means God-likeness. It's been given to us graciously by God, that we might be, the goal is to be partakers, participants, sharers, fellowshippers with God, with his nature that's conforming us to the image of Christ. And <clears throat> this is involves escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust. It, it doesn't mean that it's not a legalistic concept that you have to go get rid of all the sin in your life so that God will bless you. God's already blessed you with everything, and he's given you his word so you can escape the corruption of lust and that you can have victory and control over your sin nature. So we started off talking about this important, critical, much abused, much ignored doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. The bottom line here is the real problem is sin. And you go out and you can read hundreds of different models. There's 500 at least, by last count that I've read, over 500 models of human behavior within psychology. Now, if you go to a counselor, he's buying into one of those. 
none of them give credence to the biblical doctrine of sin and total depravity. They're all human viewpoints. They all start with the assumption that you're perfectible, you're improvable, you're basically good. That is in contrast to the Bible, which says that we're basically evil. And this is the bottom line. is It's the sufficiency of Scripture looking at our anthropology, our biblical anthropology, our biblical understanding of what makes us tick. And what makes us tick is sin and a corruption of the sin nature. And we have all kinds of words that have come into the vocabulary, our everyday vocabulary, due to psychology that talk about disease and talk about being victims and talking about emotional pain, all of these other terms to avoid confronting the biblical truth of sin. We have problems, it's because of arrogance, it's because of sin, it's because of corruption, it's because of lust. Solution is the Word of God, which clearly is breathed out by God, which means, as we're looking at our topic of truth, if God is capital T truth, then that which comes forth from him is capital T truth. It is not lowercase truth. It's not empirical or rational truth. It's not from the mind of man. It is from the mind of God. It is therefore divine wisdom, not human human wisdom, according to First First uh, Corinthians chapter two, which is about where we ended last week. And so that means it can equip us for every good work, not for most, not for some, not for the really big things or the really good things, but for every work of ministry in your Christian life. So we started off with defining sufficient, which means it's enough. We looked at the high view of Scripture that Psalm 1 has and Jeremiah 17. Uh, I thought I changed that. It should be Jeremiah 17, 5 and following. And then we have the key Scriptures. Key Scriptures are Jeremiah 17, 9. We're just evil. We're, we're corrupt. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be all the time. It means that we are corrupted in our thinking, our understanding, our interpretation of events. We interpret things all within the grid of what's best for me, what's good for me. And so uh, even Jesus recognized this when he talks to his disciples and he says, how can you being evil, can you imagine he told Peter how, that he was evil, John, all the apostles, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your, to your children. So the problem we saw last time is the sin and the sin nature, that this is the, where the source of all the problems that come out of our, our lusts, all our different lust patterns are what drive us. Those are de- the desires of our heart. They move us towards asceticism or towards licentiousness. And about the time we were closing, I don't know if I got to the fifth point last week, it's the confrontation in our soul is between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. Divine viewpoint is the whole viewpoint of Scripture, referred to in Scripture as the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. There is God's way of thinking and there's man's way of thinking. And man's way of thinking has been corrupted by the sin nature. We see this in passages like... 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5. Now, this overlaps a good bit with what I taught Sunday morning 
and we went through wisdom. We went through the natural man. We went through the passage and later on in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 starting in verse 9 going down to verse 16. The, the, all of this goes together. It's a contrast between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint because the problem was the Corinthians were in love with their intellectual heritage from the great phil- philosoph- philosophers in the 5th century B.C., and they had put it all together intellectually, and that was the answer. And so uh, Paul cuts this down. He's not going to get into those ways of teaching that characterize the philosophers, their rhetorical styles. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. He submitted to the to, to God, the authority of God, and they may seem more sophisticated, more educated. They have a much more technical vocabulary in terms of philosophy, and he's just f- boiling it down to what Christ did on the cross. And he says in verse 4, "...and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words." He says the world has their view of how teaching should be done, how speeches should be made, how arguments should be presented. And that was all typical of the sophists and all of the other schools of philosophy at his time. But he said that's all based on what comes out of their their basic systems of, of metaphysics and epistemology. It's how they view ultimate reality and how they view knowledge. And he says, my... Speech was not based on human wisdom, but on demonstration of the spirit and of power for the purpose that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's the word of God that changes people's lives. It is not using human techniques of rhetoric that changes people's lives. That's what you get in so many churches. You get manipulation by the oratory of the pulpit as opposed to teaching the content of the Word and letting the Holy Spirit change us. So the fifth point in review is it's human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. It is lowercase truth versus uppercase truth. This is so critical and so foundational, I'm always amazed at the people who miss it. Sixth point. Psychology derives from the wisdom of man. We define the wisdom of man as empiricism, the lowercase truth that is derived from observations. We observe through our senses, through hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, all of the different different, uh, uh, senses, and we receive that information. This is Aristotelianism. And in the modern world, this is the empiricism of of Locke and, and other empiricists from the 1600s, mid-1600s on into the 1700s up until you, it all comes crashing down with Immanuel Kant. So psychology derives from the wisdom of man. Now, what else does the Bible say about the wisdom of man? James 3.15 says this wisdom, human viewpoint, human viewpoint wisdom, it makes sense. It's, quote, good common sense, unquote, because it conforms to the wishes and hopes of your little sin nature. That's why we go, oh, doesn't that sound good? 
because I don't have to become radically subordinate to the authority of God and the application of Scripture. So it's classified by Paul with three characteristics. Number one, it's earthly. That means it is from the earth in contrast to from heaven. Its source is from mankind. Second, it is sensual. Now, I changed the spelling on that. What happened to this slide presentation? Sensual, not, it's misspelled there, sensual. And then we have the word sukikos there. Now, we got into sukikos the other day, didn't we? Sunday morning. Sukikos, from the Greek word suke, meaning soul. It is of the soul. It's not sensual. This word is one of the most mistranslated, consistently mistranslated words in the New Testament. It's translated natural, it's translated sensual, sensual, and it's translated as soulish. I mean, excuse me, as uh, worldly-minded in Jude chapter 19. Jude 19 says these, referring to the false teachers who are not saved, these are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly-minded. Well, the word, the Greek word for worldly is cosmos. That's not the word that's used here. It's the word sukikos. And then there's an appositional phrase that defines what exactly what it exactly means. Soulish, it's a person characterized by the soul. And then it says they're devoid of the spirit. And you have an interpretation there by the translators who decided this was talking about the Holy Spirit and not the human spirit. And so they translate that as as not having the Holy Spirit when it just means not having spirit. There's no article there. So it's emphasizing that, not having spirit. And that doesn't necessarily mean it refers to the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of places in the Scripture where the lack of article does not emphasize uh, the quality. Sometimes it emphasizes quality, and so therefore in some places it refers to the Holy Spirit. But there are other places where that's not the emphasis at all. So a person who is sukikos doesn't have a spirit. He is spiritually dead. And this is exactly how it's used in 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man does not accept the things that is revealed scripture that goes back to the things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the mind of man. That's back in verse 9. Well, things that eye has not seen, what eye, the eye sees, what the ear hears, that's, that's empiricism. And so this is dealing with knowledge that comes apart from empiricism, and it comes apart from uh, the thinking of the heart. So what uh, the things that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart or the thinking of man. That's rationalism. So that's excluded. And then the verse goes on to talk about the things which God has prepared for us. The things refers to the revelation of Scripture that God has prepared for us. So you have a rejection of rationalism, empiricism, and excuse me, the rejection of rationalism and empiricism as a source of capital T truth. You can learn a lot of things through rationalism and empiricism. Adam learned a lot of things about. Uh, about the, his new environment 
in Genesis chapter 2 when he's naming the animals and he looks at the trees and he sees that the trees are beautiful and they're good for food and he looks at the animals that are coming through and he's naming every one of them and he notices that they're all coming two by two but he doesn't have a, a partner that is like him. And so he, he those are all lowercase t truth. But he can't learn from empiricism that one of those trees is going to lead to spiritual death. He needs some information, maybe not a lot of information, but just enough that's going to tweak the whole view, his whole understanding of reality, and that is that if he eats from that one tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that he will instantly die spiritually. That has to come from revelation. So I'm not saying that you can't learn true things, good things from empiricism and rationalism, but they always have to be judged and interpreted in light of God's revelation. God's truth overrides and interprets natural uh, empiricism or rationalism because that can only lead to relative truth or human viewpoint. So back to James 3. I did correct it. I corrected it on this slide while you weren't looking. It's earthly, sensual, and demonic. And then James goes on to say, for where envy and self-seeking exist. See, when you argue about who's smarter, who's got the best system to explain everything, then that creates divisiveness. And so this is part of what he's pointing out here is the impact of the sin nature. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every, not some, but every evil thing are there. In verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above, that's divine viewpoint, is first purer than peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Do you want to be able to think in terms of a system of truth that is based upon peace and stability and love and tranquility? Of course you do. Then that comes from the scripture. It cannot come from human viewpoint systems of truth. So under, I didn't change it. I was working on this three or four times, changed everything around, so we're going to have to do it on the fly. This should be point seven. We're going to be off a little bit here, so we need to straighten it out. Point seven, the Bible defines God's revelation of himself as truth, uppercase truth, absolute, universal, doesn't derive from human interpretation, doesn't derive from human observation or human reason. So this is where we get into this next and very important section dealing with this phrase, all truth is God's truth. This is it. The problem is the all truth at the beginning is not talking about the same truth that's at the second. They're making a logical fallacy here. For most of us, we think of this as comparing apples with oranges. The first truth refers to apples, and the second truth refers to oranges. They're not talking about the same thing. And yet by using the same word in both places, they're able to slip a fallacy past everybody, and they think, oh, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. All truth is God's truth. God created everything, so all truth comes from God. If it's true, then it's God's truth. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So 
This is what's known as a logical fallacy. A fallacy is an argument that is based on an error in deductive reasoning, logical errors in reasoning or in the explanation or in the argumentation. That's a formal definition from Jacob, um, Jason Lyle's book on dealing with logic. That's a logical fallacy. And it's the logical fallacy, the formal name for this is called equivocation. It's when you use a term with in two different ways in the argument, but you have a different meaning for it each time. So it occurs when a word is used more than one time. All truth is God's truth. So truth is used more than one time. It's used more than one time, but it's semantic ambiguity because truth has different nuances. It's semantic ambiguity is exploited so that a statement appears true but the key terms are subtly used with different meanings. So it appears that it's talking about two oranges or two apples, but in reality, they've slipped one past you with this logical fallacy, and the first term is like an orange, and the second term is like an apple, and they really don't uh, relate to each other. So in the statement, all truth, at the beginning refers to truth claims that are based on finite human interpretation of observations. These, are, these interpretations are sometimes facts or assumed to be facts. All truth, they're looking at truth or they're, look, they're looking at a fact or an interpretation of a fact. I pointed out the other night that there's no such thing as a brute fact. You and I look at something, we immediately interpret it within a grid so fast that you're not even aware that you're interpreting it. It's based on your worldview and your frame of reference. So the first word is talking about what we might call observational truth. It's finite truth, and it's subject to change. You can look at 99 things and draw a conclusion about those 99 things, and on the basis of your observations of 99 things, say that everything is X. But the 100th thing that you observe might be different. And if it's different, then it changes your conclusion from the first 99. That's always the problem with empiricism. One more fact that I discover may invalidate or change my understanding of the other 99 facts. So when you say all truth is God's truth, that's talking about finite observational facts on the part of man. God's truth refers to the absolute, inerrant, irrevocable, absolute truth of God's word. I said absolute twice. Absolute, inerrant, irrevocable, universal truth of God's word but we have to properly interpret it and understand it. But in and of itself, it is a universal truth that overrides everything else. Now, this is just absolutely important. Now, last week when I was studying this, I decided that I've read some good stuff, and I've taught on this, and I started thinking, where in the world have I taught on this, and where have I seen this? So I started doing some research and searching the phrase on the internet, and I was so surprised, I saw that one of the first hits that came up was a statement by somebody at Dallas Seminary. I said, hmm, I wonder what they said. And so I went to the article, and I 
I used to know the guy very well. He worked for me in a Christian camping ministry about almost 40 years ago. And we were right out of our mat. I had a THM my first summer after I graduated. You really don't know that much when you just have a THM. You just understand a lot of basic things, and it takes about five years before you can get stabilized. And a lot of that comes just from teaching. That's just as a segue. That's the hardest thing for a congregation to do, especially a small church, is to train young men to teach because there's only one way you learn how to teach people, and that's by teaching people. And there's only one way you learn anything, and that is to make a lot of mistakes. And we learn from our mistakes. And so congregations have to suffer through, but, but that's part of the job of being in a congregation is to help young men learn to develop their communication skills. So just because somebody has the gift of pastor-teacher doesn't mean that they, and they go through seminary, doesn't mean that they come out sounding like they've been doing it for 40 years or 30 years or even 10 years. I tell a lot of guys, I say, I hope you lose the, everything you taught in your first 10 years. Nobody can find anything on a tape anywhere that I taught in my first 10 years, and I thank God for that. Because you're figuring out how to say it, how to teach it, how to articulate it. You're still learning as much as, as you can in the process. This is your first time really going through a lot of verse-by-verse stuff that you never did before. So uh, that's important. All truth refers to these truth claims of observations. God truth re- refers to his absolute truth. Now, this is what this guy says on the Dallas Seminary website. And this is, this is one of those application moments where you have to think. I'm going to read it to you. And you have to think about where he makes his mistakes. He now has a Ph.D. in psychology. He's done internships and worked on uh, very, uh, very exclusive places uh, in New York and other places. And he's been on the the head of the psychology and counseling department at Dallas Seminary for uh, since at least the mid-90s. And let's see what he has to say. He's, he's talking about why there's not really a conflict between Christian psychology and the Bible. At the heart of most efforts to understand this relationship is the essential theological and philosophical. Notice he brought that in. You're supposed to figure that out. I'm not going to comment. I'm going to read it. The essential theological and philosophical foundation, the unity of truth. This is often expressed as all truth is God's truth wherever it is found. Whether we are working with special revelation or general revelation, Both are from God, and the truth of both must be congruent. Although the unity of truth has been affirmed since the time of the early Christian church, this specific relationship has been classically applied to psychology. Some argue that the Bible and psychology are competing truth systems, that their sources of knowledge are different, and that their results are Resulting understandings cannot be compatible. 
They conclude that an integration of psychology and theology is not only unnecessary, it is, more importantly, impossible. If God is the author of all truth, however, we are not dealing with the ultimately different sources of truth. In fact, if we accept that God is the author of all truth, we need not be afraid of exploring apparent competing truth claims. For it is only our understanding of that truth, not the truth itself, that is in conflict. In order to approach a proper understanding of the relationship between uh, theology and psychology, essential distinctions must be made. For psychology, the basic distinction between fact and theory must be maintained. For theology, the distinction between biblical revelation and biblical interpretation must be maintained. Because God is the source of all truth, it is consistent that there is no let me get this no inherent conflict between the facts of psychology and the truth of biblical revelation. Does that sound good? There's so many he he slips so many things in there through equivocation. Just a couple of things, go back to the first slide here. He talks about theological and philosophical foundation. Philosophy, and when I first took philosophy over University of St. Thomas, did did graduate work there, they made a point. Theology focuses on revelation that comes from God, and it answers tries to answer or does answer the same questions that philosophy asks, but philosophy gets its answers from empiricism or rationalism. That was one of the reasons I went to St. Thomas, because they believed there was a God who gave revelation. I could have gone to Rice, but Rice didn't believe there's a God. In fact, they don't start studying philosophy until you get to Immanuel Kant, because they figure everything else before that is irrelevant, because those people believed in revelation. So he slips something in here. All of a sudden, he's elevated these to be on the same level. Okay, so all truth is God truth wherever it is found. He sees both terms truth in both places as being equivalent, talking about the same information. He says whether we are working with special revelation or general revelation, both are from God, and the truth of both must be congruent. Now, we're going to look at that in just a minute. They're not. Why? Because natural revelation is nonverbal, and natural revelation must always be interpreted by special revelation. Natural revelation tells you God exists, but you need special revelation to know the attributes of God, okay, to understand them specifically. Natural, let's look at an example in Proverbs. Natural revelation tells you that you can go to animals to learn certain things. You can go to the ant and see certain principles that you can derive about, uh, about work, Right? You, can der- you could possibly, if you didn't have Scripture, derive some other things. Well, each little colony needs to be dominated by a queen. But the Bible says, ah, uh, you can't go there. Je- special revelation is going to limit what, how you can interpret special, I mean, how you can interpret general revelation. You can only do it in certain areas in certain ways, but you have to have specific verbal revelation from God to know how to, which parts of 
nature or creation you can use as an, as an illustration for a universal truth. And he goes on to say that from the early Christian church, isn't that a great argument? They did this in the early church. No, they didn't. They were, and when they did something similar, they, they messed it up because, for example, everybody goes to Augustine for this or Augustine. problem with Augustine is he was deeply, deeply uh, affected by Neoplatonism, and he didn't have a, have a uniquely biblical framework. He had a Neoplatonic framework within which he interpreted Scripture. So some argue, here, here's sort of an ad hominem argument. Some argue that Bible and psychology are competing truth systems. Yeah, that's because they're two different kinds of truth. So he fails there. And they conclude that an integration of psychology and theology is not only unnecessary, it's more importantly impossible. It is. He would be at what they call an integrationist. So if God is the author of all truth, however, we're not dealing with ultimately different sources of truth. We're not talking about sources of truth. We're talking about kinds of truth. See, he misses the point. And then um, in the last part, he, he, he misses it. For psychology, the basic distinctions between fact and theory must be maintained. He, it's not fact and theory, and it's not biblical interpret. Uh, for the distinction between biblical revelation and biblical interpretation must be maintained for theology. Uh, no, it's it, he, he's got to talk about biblical revelation versus you've got to interpret it, general revelation versus special revelation. So he he makes false dichotomies. So. His conclusions are all wrong. By the way, I went to Bible.org. I'm not a fan of their website. I don't necessarily recommend it. I did, when I was searching on this today, run, ran across a statement by somebody associated with it. A lot of the guys who write or control the website, the Bible.org website, are from the New Testament Department at Dallas Seminary. And I was pleased to find two or three pastors who upload their notes onto that website that really had some strong sufficiency statements. But another statement that I found on there was just as wishy-washy on all truth is God's truth as the one I just read you. So here's the issue. We have two books, as it were, that we can get information from. One is special revelation. Special revelation is where God speaks uh, God speaks through Scripture and to man. God speaks verbally. He can be understood. He's the ultimate authority. It's written down. General revelation is based on observing God's creation. The, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. So you can look out there and realize there's a creator, but it doesn't give you specific content or information about the creator other than you recognize that for someone who can create all of this he must be incredibly powerful incredibly intelligent he must be able to do all kinds of incredible things but it doesn't tell you about his righteousness and his justice and his grace and his um and the fact that he is absolute truth or veracity so general revelation starts with the creation where special revelation starts with God. 
general revelation is 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 nonverbal. It is observing uh, creation. It's observing the ground. It's observing uh, behaviors. It's looking at those things, but it is not getting specific information from God on how to interpret those things. And in general revelation, human interpretation is the final authority. And they are seen as having equal levels of truth. What we have to remember when we study the scripture is special revelation interprets general revelation. As Dr. Ryrie used to put it, you interpret your experience by the Bible. You don't interpret the Bible by your experience. That applies to mysticism and tongues and miracles and all all manner of things. It applies to every level of empiricism, including the empiricism of the hard sciences. When you see a fossil in a certain layer, you interpret it on the basis of your presuppositions and your worldview. You don't interpret it on the basis of something that is there. Fossils don't sit there with a little uh, post-it note on there saying, uh, I was created in 300,000 B.C. You don't have that information there. You have to interpret it within a grid. So every fact is interpreted. When a creationist looks at it, he sees this is something God created. It's dead. So it got there after Genesis 3 because there was no death before Adam sinned. So therefore, it is less than uh, 6,000 years old. So when did this happen? It was something catastrophic. So radically different views, but they're determined by your presuppositions and worldview. The second point is that general revelation is not equal to special revelation. The conclusions you come to after you have observed 10,000 fossils is just relative truth. You may discover a 10,001 fossil that changes everything. You judge it by special revelation. That's absolute truth. So this is why we have to get into this next section and talk about uh, this whole issue of the of truth are these the same kinds kinds of truth okay so what's the problem the problem is that today many if not most believe that truth is relative there's no such thing as an absolute now that wasn't true until about maybe the last hundred years it really started to seep into western civilization in the early 20th century it's known as postmodernism Modernism still hung over a lot. So even today, most of you were educated, trained, probably as more as modernists than postmodernists. But if you grew up in the 60s to the 70s to the 80s, you have, you have your issues with postmodernism, your, your attractions to relativism uh, just as much as anybody else. So the idea today is that... Um, Truth is relative, so you can have your truth, I have my truth. Your truth works for you. Isn't that great? I'm so glad you're a Christian and the Bible works for you. Islam works for me. It's my truth. Atheism works for me. It's my truth. So everybody has their own truth. Truth is pragmatic, and pragmatism is destructive of all knowledge. 
um, Judges 21-25 and also Judges 17-6 makes a statement about the apostasy in Israel in the period after the conquest. Now, what's important about this is that moral relativism and postmodern type thinking isn't new. It's been around, probably started showing up in one form or another, even as early as as Adam's fall, people be you know justifying being relativistic about morality. Well, it, it's not going to really happen. It's not that bad. Uh, it, it, it seems right to me. So that's the problem. The problem is that the Bible says that truth is only in God. These are competing claims, and if you say that that uh, there is no absolute truth, the question is, is that an absolute truth? It's, it's self-contradictory. It destroys itself. It, it destroys, so there's no internal logic, but that's why what happens in postmodernism is they reject logic. That makes it nice, doesn't it? But they can't live like that. They can't live consistently with an illogical or irrational world. For one thing, all language is structured on the basis of logic. All logic does is it pulls out principles of reasoning that are embedded in grammar and syntax. But if you pay attention to what's going on with grammar and syntax and language, the devil's certainly out there with his disciples trying to destroy any consistency in language or syntax, and everything gets into a state of flux because he's trying to destroy knowledge. So the Bible always presents a problem to human viewpoint that there is truth. There's only one uppercase universal truth, and that can be found only in God. You can't get there through rationalism and empiricism or mysticism. And the conclusion is, since God speaks absolute truth, then we can have peace, joy, genuine love, and stability. You look out on the world as a postmodernist, it's not the way you want it. There's all kinds of horrible things happening. That's right, and, and the Bible agrees with you. But the Bible says that the reason it's such a horrible place is because of sin and the postmodernist says, well, it's because we just don't have a, an equitable distribution of wealth. Or the mo- postmodernist says, well, it's because there's a problem with the, with, with the economic system. There's a problem with the education system. There's a problem with the Im- immigration system. If you can just fix one of those, then we can bring in a utopia. So this is, these are absolutely competing truth claims. You can't find middle ground between them at all. God has spoken absolute truth. And for the psychologist or the psychiatrist, they come along and they say, well, if we observe enough human behavior, we can fix the problem. Well, of course they can because for them the problem isn't sin. The problem, again, is going to be environmental. They've become a victim. Somebody uh, abused them, mistreated them, disrespected them, or they were impoverished, or they just had bad circumstances. But they ignore data that you get from studies from identical twins that are reared in the same household, also identical twins that end up being pretty much the same who are reared in, in separate homes. 
Because the, all of that indicates that man is volitional. He makes his own decisions. And he makes bad decisions. Sometimes he makes good decisions. But if you have a case with twins and they're living in it's totally separate, they've been adopted at birth in totally different environments, and they end up being almost identical in everything that they do, that, oh, yeah, that's genetic. Well, sure, there are certain genetic the Bible does, and Christians don't deny that, that there are certain genetic similarities. But then you're going to have those that are, that are different. And you have two kids, they're not even twins, two kids reared in the same home with the same teaching, the same discipline, the same education, the same background. One becomes a serial killer and the other one wins a Nobel Peace Prize. It's because of individual volition. So we have to talk about this issue of truth. It's foundational. So what does the Bible say about truth? It makes an extraordinary claim, basically. What we're going to see here is that the Bible identifies God with capital T truth, universal truth, absolute truth. God himself is truth. And that when we identify ourselves with him, or identifying ourselves with him or not is a matter of life and death. That's an extraordinary claim for the Bible. Number one, God is truth. And number two, the issue of whether or not you identify with God is a matter of life and death. Identify with him, it's life, not it's death. Those are the issues. It makes truth something that is radically important, that we have to align ourselves with you. I don't know about most of you, but when I was in junior high and high school in those years, and I would hear people say certain things. Then I would hear somebody else say something just the opposite. I would what is the truth? I've always been concerned about what is the truth. I don't want to give my life, never did, want to give my life to something that wasn't rock-solid truth. And it's difficult in our world because there's so many different arguments now and so many different positions and there's so much clutter that's out there. But we have to be concerned with what truth is. We can't be like Pilate. One of the most famous statements in the scripture is when Pontius Pilate is uh, interrogating Jesus and he's asking him, well, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say rightly that I am a king. Jesus can't lie. He's truth. So he says, you say rightly, I am a king for this cause I was born in, for this cause I've come into the world, that I should hear, that I should bear witness to what? The truth, definite truth, the truth, not a truth, but the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Well, Pilate didn't hear his voice because Pilate says, well, what is truth? Truth, it can be manipulated uh, truth is something that's up to each individual. And so he goes out to the Jews, but he says, I can't find any problems with him. But that raises the issue of truth. And what it shows us, point number one, is that truth, and the way Jesus is talking about truth, is totally different from the way Pilate is talking about truth. Jesus is talking about absolute universal truth. Pilate is talking about everyday lowercase truth. Second thing we observe from this is that Jesus speaks of his role as being a witness to the truth. Now we have to understand what Jesus means when he talks about the truth. 
he is using the term the truth in a Hebraic sense, going back to the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Hebrew Scriptures say that God is truth. So he is bearing witness to God who is the truth and the source of all truth. And that thus it, object, it exists objectively. It is, truth is not subjective. It's not up to your opinion or my opinion. It isn't what works for you and what doesn't work for me or something else that works for me and doesn't work for you. So third, Pilate's response is one that indicates a cynical rejection of any overarching truth. For him, truth is something to be bent and manipulated to his service. It, thus, it's just a creaturely construct. That's how the language they would use in postmodernism. It's just a creaturely construct that works today, may not work tomorrow. Then the fourth point is that this is a conflict that goes back to the Garden of Eden. We see it there. Satan questions Eve, and he said, did God say? See, this is an issue with a truth claim. A truth claim forces you to say, yes, it's true. No, it's not true. When Satan asks this question, has God said? Yes, he said it. No, he didn't. And so he is causing uh, Eve to look at this a certain way. And so she gets sucked into making a decision as to whether or not God is speaking the truth. And the result is Satan says, hmm, God really doesn't have your best interests in heart. He knows that when you eat it, you'll be like him, and he's jealous. He doesn't want you to be like him. And what's that? He deceives her. So in Genesis 3.13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, what deception does is it gets in there, and it destroys your concept of truth. Uppercase truth means I can rely on what God says. It's absolute truth, and it's not going to vary. She shifted from trusting God's revelation to looking to her own observation. She looked at the fruit and saw that it was good to eat. Instead of relying on revelatory truth, uppercase truth, she relied on her empirical truth, which was lacking in information. So she deceived, that's what, how deception works. This is reaffirmed in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.14. Adam was not deceived. He walked into it eyes wide open. But the woman, having been deceived, fell into trans, tra- transgression. Now, the Old Testament, we have a concept of truth that is very important to understand because this forms a background for New Testament truth. If, we're, if, if Jesus is going to say, I'm the witness to the truth, he's got a frame of reference for what the truth is that, that he would share with other Jews who knew the Torah. In Exodus 34, 6, God says, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaimed. So God is speaking about himself. Yahweh Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. See, if we want truth, if we want to know what, what is really good and go back to what we desire, which is peace and stability and joy and love, it's got to be grounded on truth. 
Because if you ground it on something less than truth, if you ground it on relativism, then you can't get it. Because if you're saying, oh, we can have world peace, well, how? Well, this is the way we do it. See, if you say this is the way we do it, you are what? You are assuming that there is a right way to do it, and any other way is wrong. But if you're going to build your house on shifting sand, it's going to fall apart. How do you know that when you say there is a way to do it, that that's absolute truth? Because that's what you're arguing for. And God claims to be the absolute truth and the source of goodness and peace and love. Later in Deuteronomy, at the end of Moses' repetition and review of the Mosaic Law, he challenges the nation. He challenges the people. He says, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Life and death go together. Good and evil go together. Those are your contrasted pairs. So he lays this case for God, for the ethics that God gives, for, for what God has revealed, and he says, you either follow God, which is the path of, uh, of, of good, and it's the path of life. Or you, follow, you disobey God, and it's the path of evil, and it's the path of death. And so he then says in verse 16, "...in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments." Love, walk, keep. That's the key. "...that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess." See, if you don't love walk and keep, then you've chosen death and evil. And that's the contrast that you see all the way through Deuteronomy. So then we come to how the Old Testament views the Bible. Now, there's a lot of other verses I could go to, but these are some of the most helpful. Psalm 119, 142, Psalm 119, 151, and Psalm 119, 160. The whole of Psalm 119 is about the Bible. He says, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law, your Torah, your instruction, those first five books of Moses, your law is truth. It's not a truth. It is truth. It embodies truth. It is absolute truth. The Bible is absolute truth. Psalm 119, 151, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. All of them, not most of them. We're not going to pick and choose and say, well, this one, mm, I'm not so sure about that. That has something to do with stoning your rebellious teenage kid. How can that be truth? No, he says all of them are truth. And then in verse one, in 160, the entirety of your word is truth. Entirety is a pretty bold word. It, it, it means everything. All of your word is truth. So it is, your law is truth in verse 142. Your commandments are truth, and the entirety of your word is truth. This is absolute truth. So it's either what it claims to be or it's not. Those are the only two options. So it, if it is what it claims to be, then why are we giving our lives and our thinking to something that is not true? We have to start with, with God. Now, Psalm 119 is not the only place that says this in the Psalm. Psalm 19.9 says the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're the standard. Righteous means they are the standard. So when we get into the New Testament, the New Testament has the same conflict, the conflict between truth and the lie. 
And Jesus goes through all of this in John chapter 8. And we don't have time to go through all of John chapter 8. And I just want to pick up a couple of high points. But this is a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. But he's primarily teaching a group of disciples who are there. And the Pharisees are surrounding him and they're listening in. So they, they put in their two cents worth. And so Jesus makes statements like in John eight fourteen, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. He, that's a bold statement. My witness is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going. John eight sixteen, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. Didn't we just read that statement in Psalm one nineteen? See, Jesus is stating these things, and he's he's aligning himself with the word. In the Old Testament. Oh yeah, what did John say in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. See, you've got all these little subtle interplays there that are going on. And the Pharisees catch all this, because they know that that most of them have the Torah memorized. Uh, Verse 17, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. So Jesus believes in absolute truth, and he's not just some, some, some Neanderthal. Verse 24, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then in verse 46, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. We've seen that comes right out of Exodus and comes right out of Deuteronomy. He who sent me is true. Then we come to central passages in verse 30 and following. Now, this, this is real, one of the most important passages in, in all of Scripture. Jesus comes, and he's, verse 30, he's talking to his disciples. He says he spoke, the, and he's, he's talking to the crowd. He says, he's, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. That's a statement of salvation. They believed in him, and they're saved. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. John twenty thirty one. if you believe these things that are written, you will have eternal life if you believe in him. John three sixteen. 16, uh, God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life. So those who believe in him are saved. Now Jesus is going to talk to the Jews who believed in him. In other words, the Jews who are saved. And he says, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. He doesn't say if you abide in my word, you're believers indeed. He doesn't say if you abide in my word, you are Christians indeed. He says, no, you're my disciples. There's a difference. Some people are believers only. Some people are believers and go on to be disciples. And then he says this well-known verse that is taken out of context by almost every university. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. What he means by the truth is divine revelation. How do we know that? Because in John 17, 7, Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Okay, so when he says you shall know the truth, he means you shall know the truth of your word and your revelation, and that will will make you free. So he is talking about the truth. Well, they didn't like that, and they answered him, and they said, we're Abraham's descendants. We're all proud of the fact that we can trace our lineage back to Abraham, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. 
I don't know how they could say that. At that point, they were in bondage to sin, which is the point that Jesus makes in the, in the next verse. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You're a slave of sin. You're a slave of your religious system. You're a slave of Rome. So at least three ways, they're slaves. How can you say you will, uh, and so they say, how can you say you will, make, will be made free? So it's all about that, and Jesus condemns, you know, corrects them and says, well, you're a slave of sin, so you are a slave. You're not free. And he goes on to say, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That's pretty good. There are a lot of people who talk about the bondage of whatever it is in people's past. Jesus says the real bondage is to sin, and you'll be free of all bondage if you just obey the word. And then he says to them, you are the, your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Hmm. Your father has no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So he just called them liars and murderers. They didn't miss that. So he's saying the conflict is between the truth and the and a lie. So that's the issue in life is are we going to obey the truth and choose life or are we going to choose a lie and choose and choose death? Well they clearly understand it stood in John 8 what he was saying and they eventually took up stone uh rocks to stone him. Now we'll come back next time and start off with uh point number 7 where Jesus makes the claim that he is the truth. And he relates himself to the word because he is the word. And that is a solution to the problems in life is to get aligned to the word. So we'll come back and look at that and press on to some other key issues in this next time. Father, thank you for this time to be reminded your truth. Our Lord is truth, absolute truth. Your word is absolute truth. And you claim an exclusive right to truth, the exclusive domain of truth, and that your truth overrides all other observa- all observational truth, all rational, rationally derived truth. You define everything. That's a profound claim. And in that claim, we learn that you can solve all the problems that we face in life. And so, Father, we all struggle with different problems. We all str- struggle with different trends in our sin nature we all have different weaknesses but your truth is sufficient for all of them doesn't mean they're going to go away in a heartbeat doesn't mean that they're not going to be problems and challenges for us through most of our life but it means that we can overcome them by your word and god the holy spirit we pray that we've come to understand the radical claims that scripture makes because that is what we're called to follow In Jesus' name, amen.